Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John, we answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How you doing, John? I am doing all right. I'm all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hank, as, as you may be aware, I am a semi-professional player of the video game FIFA. Mm-hmm. And the two star players uh, on my team, AFC Wimbledon, uh, are named John Green and John Green. They're two people who are married to each other. They uh, co-parent a child named JJ, and uh, I just I have I just received terrible terrible news Uh-oh. that ball John Green broke his ankle. Oh gosh! Uh, and he's out for three months. Oh he's gosh! He's out for three months. Oh man! Oh. And I just I don't have a really deep squad because <laughs> uh, you know it's AFC Wimbledon. Yeah, uh, we don't have a ton of money. And we can't afford to lose a player like Ball John Green. So I'm furious with the Oxford United player who made that horrible tackle. I'm furious with the referee for not making it a red card tackle. I'm just I'm just annoyed. Oof. But other than that, I'm doing well. How are oh, you? Oh, if it's in the game, John, it's in the game. I'm good. I have a sore throat, and I'm worried that it's going to get worse. I, I feel like I'm at the stage where it's like, oh, I'm getting sick, aren't I? Uh, what should I do to prevent this from happening? Take all of the pills that don't do anything quick. And so I do that and then I get sick anyway because the pills don't actually do anything, but they sure are marketed to make us think that they do. Uh, and also we will do anything to prevent the sickness. So I'm having that moment. And I just I just uh, took three very large pills that smelled like the inside of a pipe. And th- now uh, I've got my fingers crossed. All right. Sounds good. You want a short poem for the day? Tell me a short poem. This poem is from Richard Browdigan. Several people have asked me why I've never read a Richard Browdigan poem. He did write a lot of short poems. This one is called uh, Love Poem. It's so nice to wake up in the morning all alone and not have to tell somebody you love them when you don't love them anymore. (laughs) Love Poem by Richard Browdigan. That's my kind of love poem, Hank. Oh, goodness. Yeah, Hank, you know, I just got back from an amazing vacation with Sarah. We were in Jamaica for five days. We had an awesome time. We love going to Jamaica. Uh, And I am so incredibly lucky to like my spouse. It's such, it's the biggest thing in a human life, I think, for me at least. Yeah, Catherine and I, uh, you will have, if you watch Vlogbrothers, you'll have seen this video already, but just last night we recorded a video where uh, we taste test uh, Valentine's Day candy together. Uh And I uh, was just watching that video you know, as I was editing it, and I was like, boy, do I like her. Yeah, that's something that uh, Richard Browdigan never really had in his life. I think he was married four times mm. and never particularly successfully, and, and he died in his 40s. So, yeah, we got, uh, we, we've, got, we've gotten very lucky, Hank. Let's answer some questions from our listeners. Uh, well, first, I want to start out with, I guess this is a question, uh, but it is in regards to the last pod in which Andrea asks specifically to John, 
In this week's pod, last week's pod, you informed Dahlia that you are really, really not a liberal. But then you and Hank both go on to state so many liberal positions that you agree with. So in what sense are you a conservative? Is it like taxes or what? Please explain. And then Andrea has put a a pumpkin with uh, the Linux penguin carved into it as her sign-off. Wow. Yes. That's a very, that's a solid sign-off. Solid sign-off. Yeah, so Hank is a proper liberal, right? Wouldn't you say that, Hank? Well, I mean, I'm further left of you, probably. But, but yeah, I would say I you're found... essentially a communist, whereas <laughs> I believe in markets. I believe that the reason refrigerators are inexpensive today and why so many of us are able to enjoy them is because uh, markets and competition. And I really do think that in many ways, markets enrich our lives. I think that they are part of why poverty has gone down a lot in the last hundred years. And so I do believe that markets can solve a lot of problems. I, I also think that there are places that markets clearly fail, especially healthcare. Markets are terrible at dealing with healthcare. They are terrible at dealing with crime. They are terrible at dealing with national defense. There are a bunch of things that markets aren't good at, but uh, I do believe in them uh, probably more than, uh, than you do. Uh, yeah, I, I have actually come around more to, especially since, you know, running several businesses of my own. There are times when I'm like, boy, these government regulations sure do keep small business down. Uh, and I like, uh, yeah, I like there are times that are that are like that. Um, but the, there's also like what I find extraordinarily frustrating more than anything about running a small business is knowing that I pay much higher corporate taxes than Apple and Google do. And I just hate that. Like, I find it extraordinarily frustrating. Like, why do we subsidize these massive companies while my company pays 40% corporate tax? And uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing about that is corporate taxes in the US, I agree, are too high, uh, which is not a liberal a commonly viewpoint. held liberal position. Yeah. <laughs> Although, actually, President Obama felt that corporate taxes in the US were too high. Uh, I, I think that the great thing about small businesses is they create more jobs per dollar of revenue than large businesses do. So Hank and I uh, privately have always said that we want to ensure that no matter how big or small uh, our our enterprise is, that it uh, employs more people per dollar of revenue than Pepsi does. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are we are good on that front yep. um, because small businesses are just, uh, they're better at employing people. They're better, I think, on average at, in terms of uh, wages as well. Uh, and I do think that the too often the system is a little bit biased against uh, small businesses. Yes. And that is another place where I probably fall a little right of center. Um, that said, there's a lot of things that are politicized in our current uh, political discourse that I just don't think should be political issues. Like, I don't think that uh, climate change is a political issue. I think maybe we can uh, have political disagreements about how government can best contribute to solving the problem of climate change. But I don't think whether climate change is happening and is caused by humans is uh, a political topic. I also think that, you know, for a long time, we didn't politicize refugee resettlement Mm -hmm. and we didn't politicize foreign aid. And now we do. And I I, I don't think that those are particularly political issues. I think um, I think there's a weird left right divide that doesn't need to exist on those issues. So there's a lot of issues where I just feel like, you know, Hank and I both maybe just don't fall, just don't don't see these things as Mm-hmm. political the way that they're politicized in our current discourse. Yes, it's very frustrating to watch something that go, go from being like, uh, very few people know about this at all. The people who know about it realize that it's quite good and uh, or, or that it needs to be dealt with or whatever it is. Um, and then suddenly, like, somebody finds it and is like, ah, I, I can score points with this one. Let's quick turn it into an issue. Right. Um, I, on either side, either they're they're like saying like I want to turn this into an issue, like I'm the champion and defender of this, um, or saying like I have found this issue and I I want to tell the world about what a terrible thing it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. In general, and, I mean, uh, it's- and then it it scores it scores the points, and then and then the entire topic becomes like just another thing on the long list of things that that like you're supposed to like sign up for one side or the other on. Yeah. I think that's a lot of my frustration right now is just that we aren't, 
uh, a lot of times I feel like we're not taking these issues particularly seriously. Like they're being treated as opportunities to score points rather than uh, as places where we need to have difficult discussions. Uh, healthcare is probably the biggest example of that in the United States right now, where, you know, nobody's being very serious about the healthcare conversation because the truth is it's extremely complicated and it involves big, big trade-offs. Uh, and we're going to have to make this trade-off or that trade-off, and we've got to talk about it that way instead of pre pretending that there's some yeah. easy solution that won't result yeah. in pain for anybody. Well, I got another question, John. This one is from Amber, and it's also for you. So I, I, think, I feel like sometimes uh, I only read the questions that are for me, but I want to give you one, John. Amber says, Hello, brothers. My favorite author is Charles Bukowski. I unashamedly love his dark humor and honest writing style, and yet when my friends read his books because I've told them how much I like them, they come back and assume more about my personality and opinions because of my affinity towards him. Am I a bad f person for reading books written by a bad person? Should I find a new favorite author? Should D.H. Lawrence take the number one place to compensate to my embarrassment? Dubious advice is welcome with open arms. Sent as to be received lovingly, Amber UK. Oh, this is a tough one, Hank. I mean, there's two questions inside of this question. One is, you know, can you separate the artist from the work? Uh, is it possible to love mm -hmm. something beautiful written by a deeply flawed or broken person? And I think the answer to that is yes, although it's complicated and I, I no longer labor under the delusion that I used to that uh, we can completely separate the author from their work. Uh, that, however, does not really apply to Charles Bukowski because his uh, writing is very sexist and racist, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just as he himself was as a person. Um, uh, so it, it's it, it, this is, I think, a, a somewhat different question. Uh, you know, I, I read Charles Bukowski when I was in high school, and I, I really liked uh, facets of his work. I, I, it, it felt like honest and raw to me in a way that most other uh, fiction and poetry didn't feel. You know, it had that... Um, that beat poet vibe, but even more down on its luck. And uh, something about that really resonated with me. So I, I, I definitely get what you're saying, Amber. I, I do think, you know, looking back now at Bukowski's work, that it is deeply racist and misogynistic, and that is destructive to the social order. Uh, so I, I think that your friend's concerns are legitimate. And... Um, I think this is a tough question. I think it's really, really hard uh, to navigate this. But I think if you can understand why people are hurt by it or feel that it is uh, cruel to them or feel like it's cruel to people who are vulnerable, then I, I, I think that may go a long way toward uh, assuaging some of the fears and concerns that uh, you have and that your friends have. I, yeah... I have to say that I am no good at this question. Because I know nothing about Charles Bukowski. I also wasn't very good at it, <laughs> Hank. But listen, if people want good advice, they go to other podcasts. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do think that there's like, uh, like, like reading things. It's so hard for me to read something that is opinionated and appealing without sort of somewhat incorporating the opinion and being like, I do kind of get where you're coming from, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's that's a hard thing for me. Where it's like, like, like my brain just can't deal with the fact that like I disagree with the perspective, but I really like the writing, um, mm -hmm. and and so like I start to get swayed over, and and I think that that's the the sort of dangerous thing. Um, I completely agree. I think that's a great point. Do you want to ask me a science question, John? Since I asked you a literature question? Sure. I want to ask you a science question, Hank. This is a, something of a social science question, though. It comes from Christina, <laughs> oh, who God. writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm from Finland, and I have a question related to your new president. I'm angry that I need to pay attention to what the president of the United States is doing. This isn't a science question. It is a science question. It's a, it's a history question. He's not my president, and I feel okay. like I shouldn't have to care about what he does. However, his policies have a wide international impact, and it seems like he's effing up the entire planet. Um, 
I'm actually worried about him starting the next world war or him not stopping Russia from starting it. I don't know why you'd be worried about that in Finland. Uh, <laughs> and if the problem is not going to be world war, then maybe it's his climate change policies and his delusional opposition to science in general. It seems pretty bad. Why does any country have this much power over the rest of the world? I think it's unfair. Is it unreasonable of me to think so? Our prime minister is a complete idiot, but at least he can only ruin his own country, not anyone else's. Hopefully we're still alive when your next podcast is supposed to air. Christina. Oh, man, there's a lot to go over here. First of all, the part where John said it is a science question. It's history. <laughs> yes. Everything. is the, the history of man. Everything is science. And, everything is science. First of all, I, I mean, uh, I, I feel like there's a big difference between what has been done and what we're afraid will be done. Um, and getting those two things locked together as if they are one thing like, yes, we need to be concerned about what may be done, and this person does not seem to me to be the best maker of decisions. But there is a difference between what has been done and what we are afraid might be done. And it seems like you have lumped those into one thing as if the things that we are afraid that are going to happen have already happened. And that's a really scary way of looking at the world. Right. The risk of catastrophizing is that it also deflects attention away from what's actually happening. I, I think we have a strong independent judiciary in the United States. I think we uh, separation of powers still function in our government. I don't think that uh, a world war is necessarily on the horizon. Um, but I do think that there are lots of legitimate concerns about what's happening right now, and we need to be serious about them. That said, uh, I, I think that if you live in Finland, uh, your your life on average is pretty good, uh, <laughs> except for the weather. And I, I think that in eight years or four years or two years or maybe even just like six months, uh, your life will on average still be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and so I would... I would try to take um, some solace in that, but it is difficult to have your life deeply affected by politicians uh, who you did not choose. However, that is a much bigger problem for, I, I think, like people living uh, in refugee camps in Kenya right now uh, than it is for the vast majority <laughs> of us. And so it's a, yeah. I, I want to focus on the people who are who are being directly affected by uh, by the current policies. Yeah, it is a it is a strange thing though that uh, that America is so powerful that the the people who vote in America have impacts on pretty much everybody, um, and that is a reason why we have to vote carefully and also vote. But I am happy to be an American citizen because that is not the case for me. At least I get to vote in the elections that affect the whole world. Um, but I will say that I would rather it be America than some other really powerful countries. I don't know if that's just me like being biased, but um, if we're going to have... No. Yeah. You pr if it's going to be us or Putin, <laughs> I prefer us. <laughs> yeah. Marginally. Uh, I, there's one other thing I wanted to say here, Hank, yeah. which is there's this uh, great quote from the theologian Miroslav Volf that I think about in this context. Um, and that my uh, therapist shared with me recently. Politics touches everything, but politics isn't everything, not by a long shot. I like it. John, I'm going to ask this question that you've got highlighted right now, because I figure that means you want me to ask it. It's from Amelia, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I live in Toronto. I've noticed that on major streets... Oh, God, Amelia, please take us in. Just can we please come and visit? Can you just... <laughs> is there possible that we could just... If, what, can you get me off of the list that says that I'm not welcome in Canada? Please, Amelia, please. Do you work for Justin Trudeau? Can you talk to someone? <laughs> I'm sorry, what is the question? The streetlights alternate sides on major streets, while on residential streets, they're all on the same side. The thing is, on my street, the streetlights are on the south side until mid-block, and then they switch sides. Now they're on the north side. This is madness. Can you help me shed some light, smiley face, on this issue? Who decides these things? Is there any regularity at all in streetlight placing? Is it different where you guys live? I, and then uh, Amelia says, memento mori as a sign-off. 
that's my favorite sign off we've ever had in the history of Dear Hank and John. I'm signing off all of my emails, Memento Mori, from now on. You know what that means, right? I just Googled it. It, it means remember that you have to die. That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best that's sign good. off. I mean, why that's would really you ever good. sign off an email best wishes ever again when you can just Memento Mori it and put the email recipient <laughs> right in the place where they need to be. Anyway, Hank, why uh, do streetlights change places? I only wanted to read this question because of the sign-off. <laughs> and I almost missed it. Um, uh, there are places, John, where a train going across a national border will have to be removed from the train tracks, have new wheels put on it, and then put back onto the differently gauged train tracks that are different width apart. Because one country started their train tracks and the other country started their train tracks and they were like, oh, we have to bring them together. But then they were like, oh, we've got all these train tracks that are different sizes in our countries. There's only one solution and it's to change the wheels on all the trains. What does that have to do with streetlights? Streetlights are not that big of a deal. I'm just not super concerned about the streetlights. Oh, situation. so you're just not answering that, the question. Like, there one is... person, like, they were doing the streetlights on one side of the street, and, like, they were coming down, and they were like, oh, but back there, when we started the streetlights, like, 50 miles away on that side of the of the town, we did it on the other street, and then, like, it met halfway in the middle of the block uh, here, uh, in Amelia's block. I'm not super concerned about that. It's a thing that happened but it's not that I just I'm not I'm not concerned. I do uh, in my residential neighborhood. There's one streetlight per per block on the intersection, and no um, no on the street at all. That's a very long. So that's how it is for me. Amelia. Explanation for an answer that is basically I don't know. But yeah, we don't, we don't know Amelia. No, it's not I don't know. It's John John John. It's not I don't know. It's I don't care. <laughs> Okay, we don't know and we don't care, Amelia, but memento mori. Uh, All right, Hank, I've got another question. This one comes from Sarah, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm a Girl Scout in the midst of cookie season. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, It's my favorite time of year and a controversial one at that. Why is this a controversial cookie season? Oh, no, Hank, we don't even know the controversy. It's possible that we're wading deeply into something that we don't understand. But we're just going to do what we usually do and uh, move forward. In ignorance. ignorance. I'm trying to sell Girl Scout cookies is the point. I've run across several problems such as a foot of snow and the fact that people are less likely to buy cookies from a teenager than a cute little kid. My initial idea was to send you guys the link to my cookie website so you could share it in exchange for a shipment of 478 boxes of cookies delivered to John or Hank's office. Mm, I mean, if you've got to choose, Sarah, choose mine. (laughs) I told this idea to my parents and they responded that uh, they weren't interested in investing $2,390 plus shipping to secure a sponsorship deal. Mm, uh, which was I disappointing. I but in probably, hindsight, yeah. I probably should have done the math beforehand. So instead <laughs> of offering cookies, I ask if you could share the link to my cookie website. And instead of promoting the cookies, promote the donation of cookies. The boxes of cookies donated would go to a local food pantry. While cookies are not necessarily nutritious, they are a rare treat to people who depend on food from these types of places. My website is... All right. Everybody it, get ready to write me. this down. Get if your you're pencils. in your car... Don't do that. Get your pencil ready. Pull over. (laughs) Open up the notes app on your phone. Digitalcookie.girlscouts.org slash scout slash Sarah seven five five zero three five. They made that easy. I mean, (laughs) how could I forget that URL? It's basically (laughs) google.com. Um... (laughs) Note, cookie sales uh, end March 12th, and the link will become inactive after that. So I think this is a lovely idea, Hank. Let us let us go buy some Girl Scout cookies uh, and ship them to uh, food pantries around the country. I think that's a lovely idea. Let's do it. Let's do it, John. I think we're ready to move on to the next question. I, I just had, for the first time in my life, a nerd rope. And what a nerd rope is, what a nerd rope is, is it's basically like, uh, you know, like how... Uh, there are those Twizzlers that aren't Twizzlers, uh, and you can like pull off a string from the other. Oh my God! Made of nerds, it with nerd flavoring. Yeah, no. And then they dip that into something sticky, and oh. then they roll that around in a bunch of nerds. Oh my God! Oh my God! And I'm like, can I get 478 of those? Oh my God! That sounds I'll amazing. I'll totally sponsor. That sounds really amazing. Good. Yeah. Wow. 
I bet it's an excellent source of vitamin C as well. You know, on the back of the packaging, it said, a thoughtful portion is one half a rope. (laughs) And I was like, well, thank you for letting me know, nerd rope. I have come to you for thoughtful portioning. That's why I bought this thing that's made of only sugar. (laughs) I mean, my reaction to that would just be like, you know what? You know what I I didn't ask? I didn't ask what a thoughtful portion would be (laughs) all right so don't don't go interjecting your (laughs) thoughts about what constitutes a thoughtful portion of nerd rope i'm gonna have you know you know when i'm gonna stop eating this nerd rope when my stomach hurts yeah it's like when netflix is like are you still watching jane the virgin and i'm like yes yes i am still watching jane the virgin netflix why are you trying to shame me it's a good show yeah yeah like all I'm all I'm doing is using your service. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I started cursing so much in the last five minutes. I've got there are two really good science questions here that you are refusing to read, so I'm going to read one of them. I read you a literature question, John. Yeah, that's not really a literature question. That was more of a minefield that you were asking me <laughs> to navigate. Anyway, what's your science question? All right, this one's from Jamie who asks, Dearest Misters Green. Are bugs as susceptible to microwaves as humans are? I was microwaving some instant noodles, and after the four long minutes it took to sufficiently cook them, I went to take the noodles out and noticed a small, gnat-like creature still alive and crawling in the microwave. I know that the meshy cage on the inside protects humans outside from the microwaves, but this little bug had no such protection. Did I just give that bug radiation poisoning? Feeling incredibly guilty until proven innocent, Jamie. I believe, people's sign-offs are getting really good. Before you answer this question, I just want to tell you what I think probably happened, and then you can tell me if I'm right. Mm-hmm. I think that when Jamie hit start on the microwave, there was no living thing in the microwave, but then the radiation caused a living thing to come into existence out of the noodles uh no <laughs> um i have i have at all least... right well i was i did my best i did my best that was my best guess that like doesn't doesn't radiation cause <laughs> uh, like evolution or something i saw the fly i saw the movie the fly that's what i'm basing this uh on. there was already a fly in there with jeff goldblum john I'd, it's been a while since i saw it to be perfectly honest um so first I have good news for you, Jamie. Probably. You did you very very small chance. Well, you definitely didn't give the bug radiation poisoning. Radiation poisoning is caused by a different type of radiation that comes out of a microwave. If the bug survived, there's a good chance that the bug's going to be fine. You could have killed that bug, but you didn't. And I have to say, I did a little bit of research. I'm not sure, and neither is anyone else. And this is a known phenomenon that like an ant in a microwave will not get killed. They think maybe it's because the uh, the wavelength of microwaves is is large enough that it doesn't really interact with, like if you had a big box of ants, they would get hot, but one ant doesn't get hot. Uh, but there's also the possibility that there are areas inside of the microwave that don't really get hit with uh, microwaves as much, which is why there's a, a uh, it's sort of like a field inside of the thing and there are hot areas and cold areas of like microwave concentration, which is why the, the like the little turntable spins to get your food to like hit all of the good, good, good areas of the microwave. And maybe the gnat was just hanging out in like a pocket that didn't have so much microwave radiation. But, but the good news is you should feel innocent because you accidentally almost killed a gnat, but you didn't. The gnat was fine and will be fine. And in the future, check to make sure that there's no fruit flies hanging out inside of your microwave. I mean, I would argue that the microwave failed to do its job, which was to sanitize the situation, (laughs) right? Like what I'm really asking a microwave to do ultimately is not to heat my food. I'm asking it to make my food clean. And you've really upset something that's fundamental to my understanding of the universe just now, uh, which is that microwaves make my food not poisonous. So let's just move on. Uh, well, if you if you microwave it long enough, that will happen just because of the food will get hot and the, the hot will kill. Like if the, if the ant was inside your burrito, then mm-hmm. the ant would die. 
because it gets super hot in the burrito and then death ant. But the ant's hanging out where there's less stuff. Like, it's it's really, like, it's remarkable that this is a known phenomenon that we do not have the answer to. And I love that. There's, it seems like there's a lot of known phenomena we don't have the answer to. There's so much science out there that we could get to the bottom of. Uh, and we just need people who are curious, you know, like Jamie, maybe doing a little bit of science. So maybe maybe what you should do is put up, like, start doing some tests. Get a bunch of ants, put them, put them in your microwave, see what happens. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's terrible advice. Uh, let's move on to another question, Hank. This question is from Ken, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I turned 70 this year, and I've written and fought in March for human rights, civil rights, clean water, and clean air for more than 50 years, and what I sought looked so close, and now it's just crumbling around me. I need some dubious advice. How do I get out of bed, gird up my loins, and take up the fight again when it's obvious that so many people don't share my views and will never, ever do so, no matter how convincing my arguments are? I await your dubious advice. Ken, here's my advice. I don't know what Hank is going to say, but my advice is that the arc of history is very long. And if you look uh, at where the world was 70 years ago when you were born, more people have more rights, fewer people live in poverty. Human lives are longer and healthier and more productive and better educated than they were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Uh, and that is partly due to your activism. And so it has not been for naught, uh, and it still isn't. Yeah, Ken, thank you, first of all. And uh, and I'm looking forward to fighting for clean water and clean air for, for you know, the next 50 years as well, though mm, probably not going to make it that long, am I? It's okay. I like your odds for 50 years. <laughs> okay. All right. Wow. How old are you? 36. Mm, I don't think you're 36, buddy. I'll be... Are you? God, I'm so old. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like your odds for 50 years. I don't love my odds for 50 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that does remind me, Hank, that today's podcast is brought to you by Memento Mori. Memento Mori. You're going to die. And today's podcast is also brought to you by the Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly. John hasn't seen it in a while, but he's pretty sure he knows some stuff about microwaves now. <laughs> and of course, today's podcast is brought to you by the nation of Finland. The nation of Finland, deliciously close to Russia. <laughs> and this podcast is brought to you by those trains where they have to stop the train at the border of countries and take the train off the tracks and put new wheels on the train so they could fit on the train tracks from the other country. Those train tracks. That was a good one, Hank. That was really, that was solid. <laughs> that was, that's going to go down in history as one of the best. Hey, let's answer one more question um, before we I, get to the. I, I, I know I had I had I had something else I wanted to say to Ken. Oh. You didn't get me finished by my thing to Ken. Right. You launched right into sponsorships, and I just wanted to say that uh, we are all going to be fighting for things that we will never see, and that is how like to to me being a human isn't about like getting to a place that like when I die I can feel good about where we ended up. Humanity is about always making progress forever and so knowing that the work is never going to be done but it's going to be better uh if you take the average over a long period of time and i think that that is the case and i think that we are going to have to keep working toward that goal um and the, the and if if you're going to accomplish your biggest goals before you die then your biggest goals aren't big enough I love that, Hank. This episode of Dear Hank John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, 
I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Uh, I also uh, want to end on... Uh, a note of optimism or hope, or at least to define maybe what optimism looks like for us, Hank, with this Star Trek question from Francis, who writes, Dear John and Hank, in Star Trek and other utopian science fiction content, the idea that the Earth unifies into one country is a popular one, and it's sort of the end game for our society. This seems shocking to me. Clearly, there will never be a time when every person agrees on most ideas. We've seen what happens when countries with different beliefs and values are forced together, and this seems like the only way a truly unified country of the Earth would happen. In my opinion, the end game would be lots of small countries, all unified in a simpler way, like the United Nations. My question is, what do you think the end game is in terms of countries? Will we one day be a perfectly unified planet? A critical space nerd, Francis. I don't know, man. Well, in Star Trek, it's worth noting that the only reason we have a unified planet is because we don't have a unified galaxy. Yeah. So, like, you got you got people you're worried about and you're like, okay, we need to consolidate and be like, okay. Well, but to be clear, there's, like, in Star Trek, it's not just the unified planet. It's the United Federation of Planets. So there are, there are planets in planets all with their own, you know, like, but, yes— they do have common enemies and they will fight together against those common enemies. And, and that is kind of the thing, like, you know, there, there have been lots of times when like disparate groups banded together because they were faced by some outside threat. Um, and that's sort of like the story, but that's not the only story of why people have come together in larger and larger groups. Like I think maybe what, what Francis isn't considering is that for most of human history, the largest group of humans was like a hundred or 200 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then in the last 10,000 years, our groups have gotten progressively bigger and bigger and bigger, where now we have groups that are 1.4 billion people or 1 billion people that all identify as part of the same country. To me, there's no reason why we can't have one group that identifies as human instead of um there's no reason why that that trend can't continue except for maybe the lack of a common enemy uh being uh something to hold us together but i don't think that's the only thing that holds cultures and groups together so i do think it's possible that we could have uh one big human group in the future i also i also think it's possible i think that the like there are a couple of unifying forces. One is that there are better ways to live that are objectively better. And we've seen that. And that was part of, you know, the end of the Cold War was, you know, just how much better things got in the U.S. And again, John and I are going to show a little bit of our more conservative stripe here uh, because capitalism was working so well in the U.S., and and communism was not working particularly well in Russia. Now you can argue that that was not because of communism; it was because of corruption. But um, but like the nice thing about capitalism is it sort of like has its own systems built into it that prevent uh, certain kinds of mm, corruption. Certainly not all corruption. Not really. Certainly not all corruption. Not not, not truly. Uh, well, maybe not corruption then. Um, but uh, but things. Ah, I don't know, John. Um, I don't know either, but I think you're right in general that uh, human lives have improved faster since 1990 than at any point in all of human history. So yeah. uh, something's working. Yeah, and and I I think that there are be- there are better 
systems and those the, when the systems work, they can like the appeal of that, like the objective appeal of that is like it exists, despite the fact that there are going to be lots of different reasons why we also want to be more insular and, and like hang out with people who are more like us. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that that means that like a unified humanity would not have diversity. It would have diversity of ideas and types of people and different systems and, and different economic systems, even the way that, you know, in a very small town like Missoula, there are different economic systems and people, you know, interface with the economy in different ways on very small scales and also on global scales. Um, so I, I think that perfectly unified is a weird, uh, weird phrase. Uh, it, I don't know that it accurately reflects like, like the actual goal of utopia, but I do think that a kind of utopia is possible and I don't want to lose that dream. I feel like we kind of have as a species, you know, it was there for a while in the seventies and sixties and, and a little bit in the eighties. And then it just, you know, and now, now we're sort of like a little cynical, a little jaded as a, you know, as a culture, um, in the culture that I interface with. And I, I do want to keep the, the dream of utopia alive. And, uh, and I think that there are utopias out there. Uh, we just have to try and find them in the, the best ways we know how. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very pessimistic person in general. Uh, but I, I actually believe that the biggest problems that we face are solvable. Like, I, I, I think that absolute poverty, for instance, is not inherent to human beings. And I think we may, there are people listening to this podcast who I, I hope and believe will see a world within their lifetimes that where absolute poverty is treated as abnormal and where you know, under five child mortality is below 1% in every country in the world. And that's not going to be easy to achieve, but it's possible. And I also believe that we can see a dramatic reduction in the number of conflict deaths. I think we've already seen that uh, in, in the last 50 years. And so I, I, I am hopeful about humanity's ability to accomplish things together, because I think we've shown an ability to accomplish things together. Speaking of things that we've accomplished together, Hank, um, of course, the greatest, the greatest achievement in the history of our species was the reformation and then um, five promotions in nine years of AFC Wimbledon, the greatest fan-owned institution <laughs> on Earth. Good. And I think it's time to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, even though we have so many good questions that I still want to answer, but we're out of time. So I want to, Hank... The news from ASC Wimbledon, I, I, I have to say something, which is that we received an email from Victoria and she wrote, Dear John and Hank, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I listen keenly every week. However, as a citizen of the UK, there is something that I just cannot stand anymore. I'm somewhat paraphrasing this email. As said in the news from AFC Wimbledon in episode 79, uh, they were supposed to play Gillingham, which John said was like Jif in that there was no known way to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> this is wrong. It yeah. is pronounced Gillingham, soft G like jam. And that's important because Gillingham, hard G like girl, is a different town in England. <laughs> of course Gillingham is. is in Dorset. Whereas Gillingham, the football team, is from Kent, both of which uh, sound like made-up uh, regions of England that you can only access via magic. But yeah, so uh, it's very important, apparently, to pronounce Gillingham correctly, lest people think that I am referring to a different town spelled the exact same way, uh, but pronounced <laughs> differently. With that oh noted, Hank, yep. you will recall... That AFC Wimbledon, after a scoreless draw January 21st against Chesterfield, uh, had two consecutive games that were postponed thanks to one of the greatest institutions in football League One, which is, of course, frozen pitch and or waterlogged pitch. <laughs> uh, however, uh, eventually things had to dry out and they did just in time for AFC Wimbledon to play Sheffield United. <sighs> and perhaps we should have stuck with waterlogged pitch because we lost 4-0. And I have to say, uh, that scoreline from everything I read rather flatters AFC Wimbledon. Uh, it, it could have been much worse. So uh, 
Sheffield United is overwhelmingly the best team in League One this year. They're definitely going to get uh, promoted, or almost definitely. They're very, very good, um, and we are not at the moment very, very good. Uh, we're down to 15th. Uh, after 28 games, uh, only nine points clear of the drop. Uh, so that's where things stand at the moment. All right. That was bad news. Rosiana has just texted me uh, to tell me that there is a third Gillingham. with a hard, This one is also with a hard G. It, it's in Norfolk. There are three places in England named Gillingham. I mean, is, Hank, correct me if I'm wrong here. I've, I haven't been to England that often, but isn't it a country that's like eight square miles big? <laughs> it doesn't seem super huge to me. How do you have three Gillinghams in eight miles? They, 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 it's just a, it's very dense. It's a dense country, John. We're used to America where you can like walk for days and never see a human being. Hank, the population of England is 53 million people. Mm-hmm. That's about the same as the population of Indiana. That is not true at all. And by about the same, I mean <laughs> within one order of magnitude. <laughs> yeah, what is the population of Indiana, John? 6.5 million people? 6.6, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a dense, it's a dense place. There's lots, and there's lots of little towns. Um, they're just close by, by my standards, where the little towns... Uh, you know, you need to get in your car with like some granola bars and make sure your gas tank's full. Um, I have news from Mars, John, if you are all interested in that. I know you aren't, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. Tell me. I'm excited. So Mars, we have discovered through the great work of the Curiosity Rover, was a very wet place for a long time. And it was wet with water, wetness, and that means that it was a warm place because water is only around... Uh, when it is above 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius. The question then becomes, why? How did that happen? It's farther away from the sun than we are here on Earth. Uh, How was there so much water for so long on the surface of this planet? The obvious answer is that it's like Venus or even like Earth, where it's being heated up by a, uh, a blanket of carbon dioxide. So you've got carbon dioxide, the, the solar energy go, comes in, it has a harder time coming out, and then, you know, the whole planet gets warmer. Mm. But uh, based on Curiosity's analysis of rocks around uh, these wet areas, there are not, there's no evidence that there was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at these times. They're like, they were expecting to find certain chemicals, carbonates, that would be, uh, that would have like ended up in the soil and they're just not there, which makes them feel like maybe there wasn't a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which leads to like a huge question, like what, how? This isn't like water that existed for a little while, like it, it was, you know, part of like a volcanic eruption or something. It was like for a long, long time, potentially hundreds of millions of years. They're thinking maybe other greenhouse gases like sulfur dioxide or methane or nitrous oxide, which are also really strong greenhouse gases. But those greenhouse gases are reactive and uh, and they probably wouldn't hang out that long unless there was some new input of them all the time. So basically, we have found uh, that like with you know, all this data from Curiosity, we have this very strong indication that there was a lot of liquid water for a long time, but not a lot of carbon dioxide, which makes it's just like, how, why could there have been liquid water all over the surface of this planet and, uh, and a warm planet for so long without any of the atmospheric systems that we come to know as the reasons why planets stay warm? That's a big, big question. And, uh, and hopefully as Curiosity and other missions continue to gather data, we could have a, uh, a better idea of why that's happening because it is suddenly a huge mystery in Mars planet science. So, Hank, if it was something other than carbon dioxide, does that also maybe mean that life would, if it developed, would have developed very differently because it would have had different gases in the atmosphere or not necessarily? Yes, it does mean that. Um, it also means potentially, like if it is methane, that that methane could have been produced by the life. And so the life was itself keeping oh. the planet warm. 
Um, that's a, oh. That is like a way out there theory, by the way, just to be clear. But yeah, if it, if it, also if it was sulfur dioxide, um, sulfur dioxide is a very reactive chemical that, uh, that things can metabolize. Um, so that could totally be a, a different way for life to work and to exist. Wow. So the idea is that the atmosphere would be would need the life rather than the life needing the atmosphere, or I guess both. Well, it would be both ways. Yeah, that's and that's cool, also like though. that's the that's the case here on Earth. Like obviously, we like humans could not exist if there were not plants because there would be no oxygen because oxygen is super reactive and it would go away really fast if it wasn't constantly being produced. Mm. Well, we're doing our best, Hank, to find out what life would look like without plants. We're trying. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you one more question, oh, just because I do, I do find that really, really yep. interesting and weird and exciting. Uh, I know that cows produce a lot of methane. Mm -hmm. Is there a chance that there were ancient cows on well, Mars? Well, interestingly, John, the cows don't produce the methane. The bacteria in their guts do. <laughs> so, ah. bad news. So it would have been bacteria in the cow guts. <gasps> what if cows only exist because bacteria from Mars came to Earth and then eventually colonized the guts of cows? Possible? Yeah, sure. I'm into it. Sure. I like that Oops. idea. You know, Hank, I, I've done a quite a bit of research on what would happen uh, if uh, different animals were completely sterilized of all the bacteria that colonized them because it's of great interest <laughs> to me personally and professionally. <laughs> And humans would probably survive, uh, oh. although in, in an extremely damaged way. Uh, cows, however, would die. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Totally die. Yep. They are hugely dependent upon their gut microbes, whereas we are only very dependent on our gut microbes. Yes. In fact, like when babies are born, they don't have gut microbes and, and they survive for a little while before they start getting colonized. So it's possible, but yes, you would definitely be messed up and, and uh, have a shortened life. Yes. And on that note, Hank, what did we learn today? Oh, God. Everything and nothing. Everything and nothing. We learned that John would like to talk to a Canadian, just any Canadian, about whether or not they know their Prime Minister, Justin. Good old Justin. Uh, maybe uh, they'd be interested in having a really quite quite successful author and podcaster to join their ranks. Or just get me off of the list that doesn't let me into the country without going into a very <laughs> unpleasant and scary interview process every single time. Uh, I, I understand that I'm extremely lucky, and I know Justin is probably listening to this because he's a huge fan of the pod, Hank. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a taxing job being the Prime Minister of Canada, but it's not that taxing. It's only a nation of 30 million people, but 30 million and one, if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> right. And, and what else did we learn, John? God, we really didn't answer very many questions. We learned that, uh, we, we learned that Hank does not care why uh, streetlights are on alternate sides of the street. And we also learned that someone once considered sending us $2,400 of Girl Scout cookies and then didn't do it. <laughs> And lastly, and most importantly, Hank, we learned memento mori. Memento mori, John. Thanks for uh, potting with me, Hank. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can email us your questions at hankandjohn at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, where I'm John Green and Hank is Hank Green. If you want to use the, the, the hashtag uh, Dear Hank and John over at Twitter, we'll see your questions as well. Uh, our podcast is produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our editor is Nicholas Jenkins. Victoria Bongiorno is our head of community and communications. And our music is by the great Gunnarola. Thanks to everybody for listening and everybody who helps out with the podcast. And also everybody who supports us on Patreon, where you can find our podcast, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Thanks again for listening. And as we say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.